Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. And that link will be in the show notes. Your breathing is like your fingerprint. It's so unique to you. It's based on your life, your nervous system, your physiology, your mechanics, all of these things that go into like, what is your breathing? Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health-conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at LessStressNutrition.com. Now, on to the show. The Less Stress Life Podcast is hiring a podcast operations manager estimated to start at five to seven hours a week with growth opportunity. You'll be in charge of production, publication, show notes, and descriptions, but not editing. And you'll also help with managing sponsors, contracts, and guests once you are comfortable with production. Technical skills and experience are required, and health background is a definite bonus. You can learn more about all the details at lsljobs.com to apply now. That's lsljobs.com for the application and full description. Okay, today on The Less Stress Life, I am so excited that we have Campbell Will, and it really is like that. I just want you to know it's Campbell Will, who has combined his passion for breathwork and knowledge of anatomy and physiology, and has developed an education system to teach people how to optimize respiration and how to use it as a tool for improved health and well-being. Campbell has coached me in breathwork, which has been so much fun, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But for me, my mind is blown by the science because it helps me do the things We don't know what to do here. So he's going to help school us a little bit in this. So his journey has been one of passionate curiosity, which I love exploring the wide range of breathwork practices and the underpinnings of human optimization. He teaches not only the principles of breath, but also the foundations of health and performance to breathe, move and feel is 100% achievable by all. And he's got some different certifications that he's so humble about. So we'll talk about that later. But through specific breathing practices, exposure to cold and training of mindset, we can forge a resilient, robust system that is equipped to deal with today's world and all that it throws at us. So like kind of a big, a big tall order. And I'm so excited to dig into it. Welcome, Campbell. Thank you so much, Krista. I'm really excited for us to chat. I can already tell it's going to be a fun conversation. Yeah, it certainly will be. It always is. So... First of all, I asked someone I was talking to this morning, like, what questions would you have for a breath coach? She's like, um, well, what does a breath coach do? So before we get to what does a breath coach do, I think how you got here is interesting first. And that happens all the time. I feel that way all the time. People have kind of interesting jobs. And I think, well, how did that happen? There's always some great story. 
we know you're a physical therapist. We don't know that yet, but I think that's cool because a lot of health professionals listen to this show. So I want to talk about how you went from hospital work to being a breathwork educator and like why that happened and the transition, please. Yeah, it's definitely where it all started for me. I got into physical therapy. I was just always fascinated by the human body. I never really knew where I wanted to go with it, but breathwork was not on my radar throughout university and when I first started practicing. And I started in the hospital setting, the inpatient setting. But what sort of put me on this journey, and I, I still remember it, there was that one sort of like aha moment that I can really think back to. And I'm like, that was the point that put me down this sort of never-ending rabbit hole. And I was working in ICUs at the time where my job was to sort of go in and breathe for the really sick patients. They're either on ventilators or I had to go in and if they were well enough, we would get up and mobilize. But my job was to just sort of keep things moving. And I remember this one elderly patient, COPD, he had end-stage cancer as well. So, he's quite unwell. And I went in to take him and get him up and go for a mobilize and for a walk. And he sort of looked at me with such conviction. And he said, look, when you can't breathe, nothing matters. Nothing else matters. And just the way he said that and with the emotion that was in it, I was like, whoa, it's something I've just taken for granted. And I think lots of people do because we're breathing all the time. That 20,000 times we breathe under the radar just sort of flies by. When he looked at me like that and was just like, breathing is hard. Everything else is so much harder if you can't breathe. And that sort of made me think of like, there isn't really any system in our body that's not touched by our breath, right? If breathing's really dysfunctional, it's going to have this flow on effect, whether it's to the physical, whether it's to the emotional, the psychological, like I'd be hard pressed to find a system that's not affected by the way that we're breathing because it's sort of like, it's what runs the show. It what talks to our nervous system, the operating system of the body. So, I think that was the moment I was like, I would really like to know a little bit more about what's good breathing, what's bad breathing, and how do we tell the difference and where we can take that. And it was at that same sort of time that I began practicing yoga and came across pranayama. And I just saw this huge sort of disconnect between what I was seeing as the potential of breath work and pranayama and these sort of practices that have been around for a really long time and what my role was in the hospital setting. My job in hospital was to get people functional. It was not to get them optimal. And I was like, well, (laughs) my job truly should be to get someone to the best of their ability. And I just didn't see the room for that within that sort of more structured setting of obviously there's a lot more at play in the hospital and we need to respect a lot more parameters and that sort of thing. But I just saw that there was a big, huge gap between what the potential was and what I was actually instructed to do in that setting. So, that sort of just put me on my own journey of like diving into all these principles. And the first thing I came across was the Wim Hof method. And I got all of the benefits. I was like, who's this crazy Dutch guy doing these amazing things? I'm going to try it out. And it blew my mind. I was like, whoa, I've never felt like this before. And then I just wanted to understand why it worked. So, I, I really dove into the science and the physiology behind it. And I honestly came to this realization of like, of course, this does what it says it does. Like, it's quite simple to me now that I like looked at it. But I was just like, no one's taught how to breathe. And when I tell people I coach breathing, they're like, well, I'm breathing all the time. Like, what could I possibly learn? But the same way that we can perhaps pick up bad postural habits or movement habits, we can pick up bad breathing habits. And I think it's really interesting. We're never taught how to breathe. And I always am met with a bit of disbelief when I say that, but we're not taught how to breathe. We assume it will look after itself and we rely on the fact that it'll look after itself. But there's so many of these little insidious things that if I'm not breathing right and I don't know it, 
I'm perhaps going to blame some of the other difficulties in my life on environment or circumstance or situation or something else. And maybe, and I'm not saying breathing causes all the problems, but there is something that we can grab there. There's a little thread that we can pull on and be like, hey, what if I fix this? Is that going to help my emotional regulation? Is that going to help my stress management? And all of the other things that come with that. So, it's been a a never-ending journey and I say it's the best rabbit hole I've ever gone down and I'm still going down, but I just continue to learn more and more. And the more I teach it, the more I actually see like, wow, I didn't even realize it was attached to that. I didn't realize it would have that benefit. But the more people I interact with that tell me these stories of when they started this practice or after a breathwork session, this came up for them. I'm like, whoa, I didn't even think about that. So, it's very, very fun for me and it's very interesting. And I'm very passionate about it. I love it. I love that you say who taught you how to breathe, right? Because this reminds me of the expression. And this is kind of important. Well, we're trying to prioritize or we think about what might have the most maximum impact. It's like, well, what we're doing all the time matters more than what we do every once in a while. Well, we kind of have to breathe all the time, right? We can't exactly. go very we can't go very long without breath like we can without water and food, honestly. And I think it shows us, I mean, the body is so resilient that it can take a bit of a beating and it can take all of this dysfunction before it actually tells us, hey, you're not doing this right. And so, I think people are flying under the radar a little bit. And it's not to say that everyone's breathing wrong, but I think a lot of what we might label bad breathing is like the end of the spectrum. There was a lot we were doing wrong before then. It's when I started to see symptoms. And I think that's probably true of most systems in the body. The body's really good at at dealing with and adapting and having that capacity and flexibility until it gets to the point that it's not. Mm -hmm. And what I really try and teach people is like, don't wait (laughs) until you're noticing dysfunction. Why not learn about it now and prevent yourself getting to that point that now I'm broken and now I've got to try and do something to fix this problem that perhaps a little bit of insight earlier on, you wouldn't get to that state. Yes. So, I couldn't agree with you more because it happens in the same world that I'm in in integrative nutrition, which also touches you know, kind of everything, just like with breath, right? It's like, well, we're kind of eating all the time. And so there's things that go on in our body with food, with gut health, with whatever, and that touches everything. So anyway, if you can address it earlier in the earlier stages, you don't have to wait for your body to scream at you, which we just as humans, we do. And we're not on a pedestal. It's like, you know, we're inspired to movement. (laughs) Usually, like, you know, you were kind of inspired by your patient, which is great. But a lot of us are inspired by the end of the spectrum, as you called it, right? We identify bad breeding at the end of the spectrum, whereas we could recognize it earlier. So let's go to red flags or signs that you might need to work on breath, or maybe something's a little off or things could be improved if we would stop and do something around breath. What are some red flags they need to work on? So I really like to look at like, depending on what sort of realm or, or what's most obvious for people. But in terms of the obvious shortness of breath, like if I'm going for a walk or I'm wandering around the house or I'm cleaning the house and I'm puffed, then that to me is like a signal that, hey, perhaps I'm not utilizing energy and transporting waste products as well as I could be. Our exercise capacity is very much linked to our tolerance to carbon dioxide, our VO2 max, all of these things, but we shouldn't be breathless with really low-grade physical activity. So, if someone feels that, oh, I just have to huff and puff or I can't catch my breath after doing physical activity or it takes me a really long time to recover, then that to me is like a signal that, hey, maybe there's something that we can work on there. I also think that sort of reactivity, whether that be emotional, whether that be physical, but sort of this jumpiness, if I perhaps wasn't always like that or I didn't have that and I become a bit more reactive, a bit snappy, a bit short, to me that can sometimes be tied to this sort of nervous system sensitivity. Maybe I'm in that more sympathetic dominant state and maybe that's because of the way that I'm breathing. 
And sleep's probably the other big one. If I wake up and I'm not feeling rested, if I've got a dry mouth or a dry throat, so I've got cracked lips or dry lips, they're all signals to me that perhaps we're mouth breathing through the night. And that's really what happened to me. I used to wake up with like split lips and a dry mouth. I'm like, what is going on? And then I started taping my mouth closed, which sounds really scary for a lot of people. And then all of a sudden, I would wake up in the morning. I'm like, oh my God, this is what rested feels like. I didn't even know that I wasn't sleeping well. I just thought like, oh, I have dry lips when I sleep. I didn't put those two together that maybe this feeling that I have in the morning is not fully rested. It's just like this subpar or suboptimal level of sleep. So, I think if people are waking up tired in the mornings or they've got any of those, if they're breathless or they can't catch their breath on low-grade physical activity and perhaps if they're noticing they're a little bit snappy or short or emotionally reactive, perhaps I feel a little bit overwhelmed or if I get caught in perhaps a bad mood, I can't get out of it. This inflexibility or inability to shift between, I guess, a more fluid emotional state or nervous system state. So, I just want to kind of add to what you said with waking up with dry lips, split lips. And I told you this before in session, you know, sometimes the people we live with that are new to us, like our significant others, point out our problems (laughs) that we didn't realize we had before. So, I remember he used to say to me, like, why is your mouth open? (laughs) Like, I would just be hanging out, driving down the road, and maybe my mouth is open. And we do that. And it's funny because I will sometimes talk to people about experimenting with mouth shaping at night. And sometimes I have this one lady, she just cracks me up. She's like, well, I'm trying to hold my mouth shut. And I'm like, you don't know what you were doing <laughs> while you were sleeping. <laughs> so it just makes me laugh. But we don't know what we're doing. So it's like funny. It's like posture. It's like we don't even really know how we got there sometimes. There's so many mannerisms we pick up or we or we do very commonly. It's a survival mechanism because of sinus stuff that we don't even think we really have, I think, very commonly. Or just kind of the tension maybe we hold in our face. Not an expert on that. But, you know, there's that whole thing where it's like drop your shoulders, take your tongue off the roof of your mouth. Like there's a lot of tension just to that. You know, we can yeah. walk around in a slightly tense state. I don't know if you want to add to that at all. I definitely agree. And one thing I'll say about mouth taping, I think some people have this idea that we're like taping close the mouth. And it's not to seal off the lips and prevent that aperture of breathing. It's to just give you a gentle postural reminder. Like that bit of tension from the tape that prevents your jaw dropping open is enough for you to go, oh, my mouth is about to open. So, I want people to understand we're not like sealing off. And I've seen people with a big roll of masking tape over their lips. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Let's respect the body. It's just a gentle, subtle reminder. It's the same in my physical therapy. There's a few of these sort of postural cues that as the shoulders round forward, you feel there's that little grab and it's a reminder. Oh, I'm going to fix my own posture. It's not to prevent you going into the wrong positions to give you that subtle reminder. The same way the tape's not to prevent you from breathing through your mouth. Like, I can still talk out of the side of my lips. If I had to yawn, the tape would come off. But it's not to just really close it off. And the first time I did that, I was like, I feel claustrophobic. There's no way I could sleep like this. And then I refined it and moved it. And all right, all I need is this tiny little strip of tape that just seals my lips. And it's enough of a reminder that my jaw wants to stay closed. And I maintain that nasal breathing. So, it's a reminder rather than like this forced sort of thing. But in terms of like the jaw tension and stuff, it's something... Again, maybe less just related to sleep, but something I've been so stunned by is that you teach people to relax those little muscles around the jaw and all of a sudden they're like, oh, my whole body feels different. And I I like to think of these little signal muscles that when we tense the jaw, there's a lot of that that feeds into the brain is like, what am I bracing for something? Is something attacking me? So, there's this global tension that comes from this local tension. 
And just that of like understanding those little muscles in the jaw and learning how to relax those and relax the tongue in the floor of the mouth seems to have this really global effect on a lot of people. They're like, oh, whoa, like where did all that tension go? It's like, well, you just told your brain that you're not being attacked by something because those little signal muscles are sort of relevant to I'm being attacked. And if I'm clenching my jaw, there must be a reason why. And so, those little, I guess, threads that we can pull on that start to have this more of a flow on effect in other systems of the body, I think are really like gold nuggets for people because there's such a big effect to such a little adjustment. And that to me, like the mouth taping is a small, small investment. You have a couple of nights where it's a bit annoying and you might wake up and the tape's on the ground. Persist for a couple of nights and it'll transform your sleep and you're like, whoa, I feel completely different. And then perhaps all of these other things that I was struggling with get a little bit better because now I'm getting true rest. And so many people struggle with sleep issues, which is a whole nother topic for another day. But this ties us into like breath basics or physiology 101. Essentially, what are we trying to do with breathwork? Because breathwork is like, oh, sounds nice. I breathe. The end. Um, what are we trying to accomplish? Let's go through some like basic science of what we're trying to achieve maybe or whatnot. Yeah. So, I really, I like to preface it. I like to split breathwork into two categories. I would say one being functional breathwork, which is exactly what you're talking about. My day-to-day, how should I be breathing throughout the day? How do I keep my body in that sort of optimal state? And then so-called therapeutic breathwork, which is where I'm maybe sitting down and I'm performing a specific practice for a specific outcome. How I breathe during a therapeutic breathwork session is extremely different to how I breathe throughout the day. That's like sprinting and walking. So, people should understand that there is like, all right, well, what do I want to focus? And I always tell people we should focus on the functional part. Walk before you run, right? And I think lots of people, there's this big buzz around breath work and they dive into perhaps these more complex practices where it's a superventilation or a hyperventilation. And if they're doing that with perhaps not the best pattern, then they might not get the result they're looking for. So, I think people should always start with the, the functional aspect. And for me to keep it really simple, I just like to give this little sort of meme or analogy of like low, slow and through the nose, right? We should be breathing with our diaphragm. It's our primary respiratory muscle, not just because it pulls the air down into the bottom of the lungs, but because it influences our lymphatics, influences our cardiovascular system. It's designed as this big pump. And if I'm not using my diaphragm and I'm using the little intercostal muscles between the chest, then I'm sort of interrupting some of those other systems in the body. So, we should be breathing from the diaphragm or this abdominal expansion of breath. So, if anyone's sitting listening and you take a breath in and you feel your shoulders rise up to your ears, probably not using your diaphragm, okay? We're probably using these accessory respiratory muscles. So, firstly, it's like the muscles that I'm using, the mechanics. So, we should be breathing nice and low in the body. Secondly is slow, okay? Our respiratory rate is very linked to our heart rate. The faster you breathe, the higher your heart rate. And there's even some links to blood pressure and circulating cortisol. So, if I'm taking 30 breaths a minute, there's an effect, okay? My nervous system's a bit more strung out. I'm a little bit higher on that arousal level because my breathing's reflecting to my body that something in my environment's requiring me to breathe really fast. So, we should be slowing the breath down. And a lot of science points to this sort of magic number of about six breaths a minute. Now, for a lot of people, you'll notice there's a huge difference. If we look at medical literature, we talk about 12 to 20 breaths being normal. And if you look at all of the old sort of traditional Chinese medicine, Eastern principles, they all talk about six to eight breaths a minute. So, where have we gone that far out of whack that we consider 20 breaths a minute normal? And I think if you look at the rise of anxiety and panic and stress, Perhaps some of that is because my breathing's telling my nervous system that I should be stressed, okay? 
When I breathe at 20 or 30 breaths a minute, the natural physiological response to that is stress and anxiety because I need to get away from something. So, we should be thinking about slowing the breath down. And finally, through the nose. Um, I think there's this, I wouldn't call it a, a pandemic of mouth breathing, but I think it's a lot more common than it should be. And we have developed, I guess, a little bit of a sensitivity or a dislike for carbon dioxide. Right. So, the reason that when I go for a run or I walk up a set of stairs and I want to, <sighs> I need to huff and puff, that's my body's way of regulating the levels of carbon dioxide. I'm trying to breathe off the excess carbon dioxide and bring my pH back to its balance. Okay. But if I'm breathing through my mouth throughout the day, I'm breathing off a lot more CO2 than I should be. And it's as if this sort of window of tolerance gets narrower and narrower and narrower because I'm not letting my body feel these fluctuations in carbon dioxide. So, when we breathe with the nose, purely because of the shape of the nose, there's a bit more resistance to the air. I can't breathe the air out as quickly. Some of that carbon dioxide, it stays in the body. It builds up a little bit. And that's a really healthy thing because in the sort of biochemistry side of things, carbon dioxide is really, really crucial to let the oxygen go from the blood to the body. I think this is a, a bit of a misconception or like anyone that's gone for their general health checkup and the doctor puts a pulse oximeter on their finger and says, well, you've got 99% oxygen saturation. That doesn't really tell us how much of that oxygen is getting from the blood to the cells of the body. That is 100% dependent on carbon dioxide. And if I'm really sensitive or I've developed that inability to let the CO2 levels go up, then I'm going to keep all of that oxygen bound in my blood. And I can show that I've got very good oxygenation, but it's not really telling me how well I'm oxygenating the cells, the body and the brain. So, low, slow and through the nose is a really nice place for people to start. Can I feel my diaphragm moving? Can I breathe really slowly and gently? And that's the sort of speed of the breath coming in and out and also the number of breaths per minute. And can I ensure that I'm breathing through my nose, I'd say at least 90% of the time, unless we're at really high intensity physical activity or I'm doing a specific breathing practice that involves mouth breathing, then I should be concentrating on breathing through my nose. I always love how you're very good at analogies and making it simple. Really enjoy it. Low, slow, and through the nose is the summary, but you did a great job of telling us about it. So, give us some examples of what therapeutic breathwork looks like. So, therapeutic breathwork for me, and this is where it starts to go into all these wonderful realms, and depending on what people are looking for, but for me, one of the big aspects of something like the Wim Hof method, or there's many of these super ventilation techniques where I'm breathing faster and deeper and stronger and perhaps in and out of the mouth for a certain reason. That's going to really push me into the sympathetic nervous system. That's going to turn on that fight flight response. And we might question, well, why would we want to do that? Well, it's a wonderful way to practice. Okay. How do I de-escalate or bring my nervous system back to this parasympathetic state or this place of calm? Because if the only time I feel the stress response is when something outside of me is stressful, it's very hard to control that. It's very hard to regulate. So, if I can practice, well, what does it feel like in my body when I elevate the level of arousal in the body? I breathe fast, I trigger this response, and then I work on bringing myself back down. It's also really, interestingly, it triggers, I guess, this psycho-spiritual aspect where you go to a really lovely place. And I don't know how to explain it any better than that, but to me, when I perform these more, I guess, therapeutic breathwork sessions and I go to this wonderfully meditative, blissed out, connected state where I just feel overwhelming gratitude and joy and connected to something. And I don't know how to explain that well, <laughs> but 
everyone that I do a workshop with, especially with, for example, Wim Hof Method workshops, you talk to people after 30 minutes of breath work and you just see this light in their eyes and they're like, whoa, what just happened? I feel amazing. I went somewhere. They don't really know how to put it into maybe a good framework of words, but something happened. And I think that's a really nice invitation to people that it's internal. Wim often jokes, get high on your own supply, okay? There's not an exogenous, there's not an external thing that we're taking. We're just manipulating our own biochemistry, our own nervous system, and we can go to these wonderful places. And so, for me, that was sort of what really got me into this. Is like, I do this breath work. I'm like, I feel really different. I feel like a better person. Why not try and sort of recreate that and facilitate that for myself and for other people? And so, I think it's a a really wonderful way. And second to that, not just for the sort of blissful state, it's a, a wonderful way that we can release emotional tension. I think as humans, we are terrible at just letting go of emotional pain or tension. We hold onto it. We remember it. We go over it. We ruminate. And that sort of lives in the body a little bit. And very, very often when I'm hosting group breathwork sessions, there's a lot of tears at the end. And people are like, oh, I don't know why I'm crying. I'm not upset. I just feel like I'm letting go of some stuff. And I think that's so important for people to have an outlet where I can let some emotion move. And it doesn't have to be in a specific way. It just comes up and people feel emotion moving and they're like, I feel lighter. I feel like I've let go of what I was holding on to or what was stressing me out or what I was worried about. And the beautiful part about it is it doesn't have to be like, I don't ask people, hey, I want you to think about some emotional tension. I want you to try and let it go. It happens by itself. So, that sort of fluctuation of that stress response, relaxation response, manipulating the physiology, something happens there where our body sees this as an opportunity. I can let some of this stuff go. I'm going to let it come up. I'm going to let it move. And people feel all the better for it afterwards. couple things. One, I always like to tell people we can go about an issue from this triad, right? This emotional, physical, or nutritional aspect. And you coming from the physiotherapy or physical therapy world is really familiar with that structural aspect. And of course, breathwork is structural, but it also, all these things are tied in no matter what. But it's like triggering emotion. If we think about the nervous system as sort of being emotional regulation, it's kind of triggering that. Now, you made us curious talking about this flow state or this super high. And I have experienced that only because of working with you. I'd never experienced that before or on my own, but I don't know what else to call it besides, and not like I'm super familiar with this feeling, but it's like, if this must be what feeling high would (laughs) feel like. And so when you say it's like high on your own supply, it makes a lot of sense. Now you to put our finger on it just a little bit more, you have either, you know, or your hypothesis is related to something about oxygen, something. Can you like help us put our finger on that high a little bit more? So it's not so abstract. Yeah. So, some of this is backed by good science, some of it is speculation. And I think if we always can only rely on the sort of the valid peer-reviewed studies, then we might be waiting a while. And so, some of this is more speculation from practitioners. But to me, what I look at it is is sort of two aspects. One is that sort of post-stress feeling. Like, I think we spoke about this before and I joke about it in workshops that I've heard a lot of people talk about the runner's high where they're like so far into a long run that they're like in this state. And I'm like, running is (laughs) excruciating to me. I hate it. I could never see how running would make me feel this like blissed out state. But it's something to do with the body meeting the challenge that it faces or getting through that point. So, when we go into these sort of elevated states of energy or breath, and then there's this beautiful calm state afterwards, I think there's almost an endorphin release of like, hey, I got through the challenge. 
same thing if you have a really perhaps heavy workout and you get through and you feel pretty good afterwards. And I think the body recognizes I got through that difficult state. But then I guess on the sort of more biochemical aspect is we do have this, I guess, ability and whether it's conscious or it's more of a response to certain mechanisms. But when we're playing with levels of oxygen in the brain and, and they've done, they've put people in brain scans when they've done something like the Wim Hof method or holotropic breath work, where we're seeing this alteration, number one, in brainwave states, but number two, in the sort of molecules that are hanging around. I think really interestingly, the relationship between sort of melatonin, if we remove carbon dioxide from melatonin, we get dimethyltryptamine or DMT, which is the sort of spirit molecule that there's lots of research about. There is a lot of speculation and Wim Hof used to call it DMT breathing or power breathing. Holotropic breathwork puts people into these very psychedelic states where they're having visions and they're seeing colors and they're describing what Stanislav Grob used to see in LSD trips, in medically supervised LSD trips. So he created this form of breathwork to try and recreate therapeutic psychedelics without using psychedelics. So I think there's a perhaps a little bit more research that needs to be done as the mechanisms at play. But I think it comes down to those two aspects of like letting your body, your mind, your spirit sort of face this challenge and getting through to the other side and being rewarded with these endorphins and this positive response of like facing that challenge and getting through it, but also manipulating some of the brain biochemistry. And that's harder to point to because they generally need to do an invasive study to see where it's being released from and what's being released. But I think there's perhaps a little bit more research to be done to see what chemicals are at play and what's happening in the brain to create these really blissed out states that a lot of people experience. Sorry, I have thoughts on this. (laughs) So I'm going to go back to a moment because you talked about functional breathwork versus therapeutic breathwork. And you mentioned therapeutic breathwork, kind of like these super practices. You said Wim Hof, aka holotropic. What is holotropic breathwork? What does that mean? So holotropic breathwork is a really long version of a super ventilation. So Wim Hof method, for example, we do about 30 big breaths. And then there's a retention period. And that sort of like balances the blood gases. It's sort of like stress and recovery, stress and recovery. Holotropic breathwork is that deep breathing for two, three hours. So it's very, very intense. <laughs> but it was developed by Stanislav Grov, who was a, a sort of psychedelic researcher back in, I think, the 60s and 70s. And he's put thousands of people through these practices. And a lot of what they see is like, oh, this is the same as LSD. So the sort of speculation is that it is tapping into some of those same, I guess, pathways. But it's like putting your body into this hyper stress response. And a lot of people talk about it as it's like, There's, again, speculation that we release a lot of DMT when we die. It's the sort of transition. And what holotropic breathing is doing is tricking your brain into thinking you're going to die. Because when you do hyperventilate for prolonged periods, we actually see a huge reduction in cerebral oxygenation. We start to vasoconstrict, all the blood vessels close. So there is an idea that perhaps these prolonged hyperventilations are actually restricting blood flow to the brain. And that's creating this sort of neural stress response of, I'm going to die. And that's what releases some of these hormones to sort of make that transition. But no one dies, which is great. (laughs) But I think they're trying to perhaps trigger some of those same responses in a way. I've not done those longer sessions because I know in myself, I've seen what the more intense breathing can do to people, especially if they do have some emotional trauma or they're not prepared what's going to happen. You lay someone down, you make them hyperventilate for two, three hours and you're not trained in 
managing that, then I think you can take people to a not so good place because I always like people to respect it. It can do some pretty powerful things. And so I would say anyone go and look up polytropic breathing and then do your own session in your bedroom. It's just not going to end well. It should be done with a, a licensed sort of facilitator because the idea is it's taking you to a pretty heavy place to trigger some of those responses. Thanks for mentioning that. There is an episode... I think it's the Mercury one with Dr. Christopher Shade, where he talks about people doing body work and emotional work and whatnot. So to back up, our body is always trying to protect us, obviously. And so it'll like shuttle things away. And we see this with toxins for sure. We store things in toxins or we store toxins in fat. Our liver's whole goal is to make things from fat soluble to water soluble so we can urinate them out. So if it can't handle things, it wants to get them away from our vital organs. So it'll store it in adipose tissue. And in a similar way, if we're just talking about toxins, on that episode, he talks about people doing breath work and energy work and like letting things go that are maybe stored in a certain area. So you can have these not always good reactions if it's not being managed well, or it's some, you don't have someone there to help grab that and help take it out of the body because we're kind of like liberating something our body has like pushed literally under the rug and shoved in a closet. And now we're trying to take it out and move it on out because it's kind of like sucking the life out of us slowly in different places. But it's just kind of interesting. And you know, when you mentioned it's simulating being ready to die, not very attractive. Not very attractive. <laughs> so, but what I thought of was that it's kind of the breath work synonym to intermittent fasting. Because yeah. intermittent fasting is like people are like, oh, it's so cool. But let's just be real about what's going on. Our body's like, oh, I don't have resources. So I need to prioritize. And so if I'm going to prioritize, I'm going to increase program cell death and apoptosis and autophagy. So I'm going to get rid of crap diseased cells. So it's like a survival thing, right? It's always about a survival thing. I'm going to like get rid of crap. And this is how I'm going to do it. Anyway, I don't know if it ties in very well, but it's like the best synonym I could think of. Yeah, and I've actually, I've used the same analogy and it just sort of like came to me the other day where I was like, oh, it's like, Especially when we're doing these hypoxic intervals of breath work. So something like the Wim Hof method, we have a period of breathing and we have a period of holding our breath. And the idea is to really manipulate our chemistry. Oxygen levels go up and down, carbon dioxide levels go up and down. And the Nobel Prize last year, I think, got one in physiology for this hypoxic inducible factor, which is like a protein that every cell has that registers, oh, oxygen levels are going down, let's trigger this set of responses Okay, which is the same as, oh, there's no food, let's trigger this set of responses. So, to me, it all comes back to this concept of hormesis, is that sort of like small dosage of a stress to create a positive adaptation. Look, sure, being in a hypoxic state for prolonged periods is catastrophic for your health, but doing it for one minute in a conscious controlled manner and letting your body adapt positively, huge benefits. Yes. So, I think it's always important context is really, really important and duration and the dosage of the stressor that we're using. And I really love to vibe out about stress to people because it's such a word with so many connotations. And to me, everything is stress. To your body, like anything that shifts you a little bit out of your balance, that's stressful. And it's your body's ability to adapt to that. So, hypoxia, stressful. Hypercapnia or high CO2, stressful, right? But are you giving your body the opportunity to respond to that and to learn and to create adaptation? Great, there's going to be benefit to it. But am I just blasting my body with additional stress because someone told me it's a good idea? Like I'm sure you know, and I'm sure you encounter this, that lots of people go, oh, I heard intermittent fasting is good, so I'm going to do it all the time. It might not be good for you. Maybe you're really overstressed and your body can't tolerate this additional stress that you're throwing at it because someone told you it's a good idea. When we're not really respecting, are you giving yourself the opportunity to adapt and to recover from these periods of stress or is it just more stress to an overstressed state? That's absolutely gold. <laughs> you're exactly right. And that's how people are like, oh, what about this? I'm like, 
depends on how your existing stress system is or your adrenals. Can they handle it? Because if they cannot, this isn't going to be... It's like, this is just an American thing, right? It's like, or a human thing. We take something where like a little bit is good and do it a lot. And like, usually nothing works very well when we do it. <laughs> so I'm going to review again. There's functional breath work, what you do, and you should correct the foundation first. And then we have therapeutic breath work, which looks like these super practices like Wim Hof breathing that maybe or maybe not people have heard about. But you mentioned, we're trying to like ramp ourselves up, get in fight or flight, this super thing, and then bring it down. We're trying to practice, would it be appropriate to say nervous system flexibility, right? Yes. Because we're kind of inflexible. We've been running fight or flight you know, a long time, we tend to not get into rest and digest. So it's literally practicing how to get there, correct? Yeah. So I really love that term. Nervous system flexibility, like to me, hits the nail on the head. And an analogy I like to give to people, it's like, if you're driving around your car at 6,000 revs all day, every day, and that's the only gear you're in, you burn out the gearbox. But sometimes you need to go from six and touch 10 so you can come all the way back down to neutral. You need to show your body, hey, this is actually the stress response, okay? Where I'm feeling is my neutral and I'm running around all day in this heightened state is not your neutral. Mm -hmm. But you need to find those two borders so that you can find the middle. And that's where a lot of these practices like hormesis or hormetic practices come in. It's like, let's find the guidelines. Let's find the boundaries that is like, this is what I can tolerate on this end. This is what I can tolerate on this end. That helps me find homeostasis. Like this is the middle ground where my body's happy because I've just shown it where those external limits are. But if I'm stuck in this very narrow bandwidth at an elevated state, perhaps of stress or emotion or whatever it might be, then it's very difficult to just tell someone, oh, you need to downregulate or you need to come out of that. So sometimes it's like, well, let's let your body feel when we ramp it up so that you know what it feels like when you're not in that state. And the other side or the other part of this, and I read this quote, somewhere and I can't remember who it was, but it sat with me and I'm like, it's so important that it was just like the number one thing for people's health is learning how to de-escalate their nervous system. Because there's a lot of stressful things in life. And if something triggers you, someone cuts you off in traffic and the next eight hours you're dealing with this elevated cortisol and you're telling people about it and emotionally annoys you and you're holding this tension in your body, then that's an issue. That's a problem. Difference to the person that the same thing happens and they blow it off and they brush it off and go, oh, that was annoying. I'm going to come back to my balanced state. That person has got a really flexible nervous system. They've got a flexible emotional state that something happens, We the proverbial shit hits the fan, and it's my ability to self-regulate and come back to a state of like, I've dealt with that, I can let it go, move on. Versus the people that are like, I have to hold on to that and I have to analyze it and think about it and replay it in my mind and deal with this continued re-stress state that just comes from me overplaying it and over over attaching to it, I guess. Repeat the quote because we need it in our brains. The ability to de-escalate the nervous system is paramount to people's health because there's so many things that are going to escalate the nervous system, right? And this is, again, what I really like to teach about stress. It's not about removing yourself from stress. You can't, okay? You have to live in a bubble in a cave to not deal with stress. So, what you should practice is how to deal with it, how to manage it, how to recover and how to be flexible in the face of stressful things instead of getting that triggered and now I'm stuck in that sympathetic nervous system or that heightened emotional state and I can't get out of it. That to me is much worse or it's much easier to learn how to manage that than it is to get away from stress or get away from stimulus. So, we're talking about a set point because if you're already walking around ramped up a little bit, then your ability to tolerate things as someone 
is different from someone else. So I just want you to mention, maybe you've mentioned to me in the past that something that maybe you would do with one person is different than a person who has panic attacks because they can't tolerate things in the same way. Their body's going to recognize a small amount, I think, of CO2 as like a panicky thing, correct? Yes. And I think it always comes down to, I like to think about like your breathing is like your fingerprint. It's so unique to you. It's based on your life, your nervous system, your physiology, your mechanics, all of these things that go into like, what is your breathing? And I love to think, sort of make people realize this idea of that your breathing reflects your state, but it also affects your state. And if someone's, for example, in that really heightened anxious state, perhaps in a panic attack, telling someone to like, well, you're going to breathe at six breaths a minute, you're going to slow it all down is like trying to throw a blanket over a fire. Like, we need to sometimes match the nervous system, recognize where we're at, and then begin to regulate. So, I think this whole idea of like, take a deep breath or relax, just calm down. Like, we're not respecting our physiological and psychological and emotional interactions. So, if I'm in a very heightened state, I can't just snap my fingers and breathe calmly and it's going to go away. Because what I'm introducing is another form of stress. My body is breathing in that way or behaving in that way for a certain reason. Something's triggered that. For me to ignore that and just introduce something that's completely different, it's the other end of the spectrum, okay? It's like screeching from 100 miles an hour to zero, right? It's not good for the car. But if we can learn like, all right, I've got to meet myself where I'm at. I'm recognizing I'm breathing rapidly. I'm feeling clammy. I'm feeling anxious. Okay, maybe I start to just change the breath a fraction of a second longer. Okay, maybe I start to notice am I breathing from my nose and my mouth? Like, let's take the little pieces, okay, and start to manipulate those until I start to get it under control. And now I can start to maybe lengthen the exhale. And now I can start to get my mind back. I'm not catastrophizing. Like, I think it needs to be this like step by step process. And that interaction of physiology and psychology and emotion is really important. Because when your physiology is freaking out, your mind's probably freaking out too. And so, I think we need to recognize another example is you're doing really, really intense physical activity. That breath pattern is the exact same as someone having a panic attack, but there's not the emotional tension that's going with it. Okay. My body's just regulating its physiology. (sighs) I'm puffed. I'm trying to breathe out CO2. I've done all of this work that's creating that pattern. It's contextual. Again, I'm not freaking out that I'm breathing like that because I know why it's happening. Whereas if someone's perhaps having a panic attack or a really heightened anxious state and they're, (laughs) there's no context. Like the breathing is not reflecting an energy demand from the body. So all of a sudden we've got this system that's really out of sync with environment or what's happening in the mind or what's happening. So I think it's important for people to like, well, where's the thing that I can grab a hold of? Okay. And A lot of the times it's breath, but I think we need to be slow and gradual and gentle and graceful in the way that we try and control an aspect or a response of my body. Because I've dealt with a few people having a panic attack and I know if I said, all right, take a five second inhale and a five second exhale, they'll just be like, are you joking? It's impossible. Like you can't go from (laughs) to just forcing this different breath pattern on your body. It'll make you feel ever more panicked because all of a sudden I'm not responding the way that my body's trying to respond and I'm forcing something on top of it. So I think it's like find where we can create that little bit of a lever or where I can get a hold and then start to slowly work the body back down. And I think that, yeah, it's contextual dependent. Mm -hmm. Okay. So last thing to riff on this, again, we have our functional breathwork and our therapeutic breathwork. You mentioned one time, so you're Wim Hof certified, you're HeartMath certified. These are like 
if you're kind of in the breath-ish world, you might have heard of these things. But you mentioned to me one time that when you start to see this, these universal truths are the common denominators between these super practices. What are some of those common denominators that all of them, and maybe we've already addressed it with nervous system flexibility, but what would you say like at the end of the day, this is one method of trying to do this thing? Yeah. So I think... And and this, I guess, came when I had started diving into the heart mass stuff. I was like, wow, this is really fascinating. I'd never, as a physical therapist, as we were talking about before, like I was really focused on structure and mechanics and I wasn't really thinking about emotions. But then looking a little bit more, again, they're very backed by science at heart math. They do a lot of research. And when I would start to introduce that concept into patients that I was seeing structurally, okay, I would start to see that there is this interplay. So, I think for me, the common denominator is that you can't separate away, all right? Your breathing is going to affect your thinking. It's going to affect your emotions. It's going to affect your nervous system. Your nervous system is going to affect your breathing, your emotions, your emotions affect. So, there's just this like beautiful interplay. And I think what's relevant or I, I think why I love breathing is, is to me, it's the most accessible. It's the easiest for people to grasp. It's the easiest for people to change. Like to me, emotional self-regulation is difficult. And for a lot of patients that I see, if I said, we need to start thinking about positive emotions and changing your emotional state, I'm going to get met with a blank stare. Because that's, I guess, for some people, it's a little bit more difficult in this realm of, oh, well, I'm not an emotional person or I'm not, I don't work with those words or that language. Whereas if you tell someone to breathe slowly or you tell someone to change their breath, like breath is a very, I guess, concrete thing where I think people are a little bit more, not hesitant, but maybe they don't have the understanding of nervous system. And if I start talking about autonomic arousal and they're like, whoa, whoa, I don't get what you're talking about. If I talk about breathing, everyone knows what I'm talking about. So, I think for me, and when I look at the Wim Hof Method, it's very breath-based. When I look at heart math, it's, although it's one of the steps, to me, the breath part of the heart math is very, very important. And when I look, even in when I'm treating physical pain as a physical therapist, breathing is just intertwined. Like when I see chronic pain patients, there's a very particular breath pattern. When I see fibromyalgia, until I started really diving into the breath world, I never noticed that. But now that I have, I guess, this background understanding, then I see it everywhere. And so, when I'm dealing with people that are just stressed or overwhelmed, or I'm, at the moment, I'm treating a lot of people with anxiety and I'm not doing that as a physical therapist. It's all to me about breathing. But when I start diving into it with them, they're like, oh, breathing affects the way that I feel and the way that I feel affects the way that I move. And all of a sudden, my back pain goes away because of, I've changed this aspect where it's like drawing those lines between those points. It's kind of a bit abstract until you start to see the relationship. So, I think the common denominator is really breath affects everything. Absolutely, it does. All right. So, I... Wanted to mention, I told you this, I started one of the Wim Hof classes and I did like the original Wim thing. And you mentioned like, who's this crazy guy? I mean, he's like a crazy dude with long <laughs> hair who's like hanging out in his shorts all the time. And then there's one that's more scientific. I didn't buy that one. But one thing I like <laughs> about you is you're good at talking about the science because I do need, and I feel like I need like, I do love this, but I need to like, I need the science a little bit. And one of the things that blew my mind when you were teaching me things was the relationship between pH and breath, because we try to simulate similar things in diet sometimes. And so, can you just talk about pH and breath work and what happens? You've danced around it a little bit in our entire conversation, but let's talk about pH and breath quickly. Yeah. So, let's think of, I guess, the primary role of breath is to keep us alive. Okay. We need oxygen to keep us alive. But I guess to me, and if you look at, I guess, a lot of the people that work in that realm, the secondary role is to regulate the pH of the blood. 
And the reason that that's important, obviously, is our body has this very tight-knit homeostasis where we want to be at a certain pH. Why is breath important is that carbon dioxide dissolved in the blood is carbonic acid. It's acidic. So, the amount of carbon dioxide that's present in my blood is going to change the levels of pH. So, when they've done studies on people practicing the Wim Hof method, when we're getting to the end of that round of superventilation, people's pH is up at 7.7, 7.8. So, really alkaline. Now, again, it's not that we're going to try and live at 7.7, 7.8. A lot of bodily functions will stop, right? We need to be at 7.35, but that's stretching out into that alkaline zone and coming back down and also going into that hypercapnic, that high CO2, that more acidic, is giving my physiology that flexibility. And I think what happens for a lot of people is perhaps it's mouth breathing, perhaps it's a ve- elevated breath rate, perhaps it's poor respiratory patterns, but I'm off-gassing or I'm breathing out a lot of CO2 all the time. And so, my flexibility, again, is pretty narrow. So, something like the Wim Hof method or these super ventilation practices gives you the ability to let your physiology stretch, okay? You can go all the way up to 7.7, it can come all the way down into these more acidic states. And it's not to stay there, it's not to live in that altered state, but it's to provide that stimulus so that then you can find that easier middle ground. But we breathe out CO2, so the more that we breathe out, the more that we're going to discharge that CO2, and that's going to affect. There's some really fascinating research on the sort of flow-on effect of people that have chronic hyperventilation that then start to regulate their pH by releasing minerals from their bones because they're actually breathing off so much CO2 all of the time that the body's driven to maintain that 7.35 and it needs to get that acid from somewhere else and it starts dissolving certain minerals. So, that's like, again, the far end of the spectrum and it's not suggesting that everyone that breathes a little bit too much is going to get osteoporosis, but there's quite a heavy stack of research that that breath rate and that chronic hyperventilatory state, your body's going to regulate somewhere else, whether it's the kidneys, whether it's these other parts of your body. If you're not optimizing through your breath, you're going to have to adapt somewhere else or compensate somewhere else. So, I think it's such an easy, simple way to make sure that your pH is balanced. I just have to underline how important this is from my perspective, from a clinical perspective. I don't see... So, let me back up. You get kind of weird symptoms when you have like major mineral stuff going on. You might get some heart palpitations. You might get cramping. You might get twitches because they kind of regulate muscle contraction and whatnot. But I see in people aging or people with adrenal stuff. So backing up, the minerals are the backbone to adrenals, which is, you know, your stress response essentially, and detoxification, which will basically, if that's not working, like the rest of your life is pretty much going to suck. So dumping minerals is a giant issue because they're so inefficient to replete. It's very hard to get them back into the cells and to work. Like it's slow. Like you can take vitamin B and C or something water soluble and it's a little bit different, but like the minerals require your cells to be at a certain level to even get inside of them. So it takes a very long time to replete minerals that include the calcium, magnesium, iron. I could just go on and on and on. I mean, it's so essential for thyroid health. So when you're saying chronic hyperventilation, let's just back up. Like if you're breathing too fast, not low, slow and whatever, and through the nose, then maybe you're accidentally in a state of chronic hyperventilation. I just want to point this out because I see this in anyone who's had chronic stress or anyone who's had issues for a long, long, long time, which tells me that there's probably a chronic stress component. Because I say stress is multiple things. It's got stress, food stress, regular stress, and, and toxin stress. But I just have to like tell people, this is like a really freaking giant deal. Yeah, <laughs> Basically, and I'm, not having minerals ruins your life. And like to double underscore that, 
again, like this word chronic hyperventilation, people think it's like a clinical syndrome or I don't chronic hyperventilate. If you're breathing at 20 plus breaths a minute, which a lot of people that come into practice that I treat that are nothing to do with breath work, but I measure that are breathing up 18 plus, 20 plus. That's chronic hyperventilation in my mind. So, let's not think that it's this clinical diagnosis that, oh, well, I haven't been diagnosed with chronic hyperventilation. That's not me. Okay, I would even go as far, and this might be extreme, and this is my personal opinion. If you're breathing more than 12 breaths a minute, I would call that a form of hyperventilation. It just means breathing too much. Hyper above, like, it doesn't need to be a clinical diagnosis. It's just like, again, there's this beautiful yogic saying that you're born with a number of breaths, okay? And you breathe 20,000 times a day. If you breathe at 24 breaths a minute, you breathe at 28,000 times a day. Like, think of just how many cycles your body can tolerate. The difference between you breathing at 18,000 times a day and 30,000 times a day over your lifetime is immense. So, it doesn't have to be obvious. And like where we touched on, this may be sort of subclinical. It may be not right. You're not getting symptoms yet. But if you're breathing 20 times a minute, I can guarantee there's a compensation happening somewhere. And maybe it's not evident yet. Maybe you're not feeling the ill effects of it yet. But that's something that you can very, very easily fix. So that you perhaps don't have to deal with the symptoms that are going to come at some point from that non-optimal pattern that we do so many times throughout our lifetime. And to put myself on the chopping block here, I had to realize that excitement was still read as stress because the problem with stress is that we don't really think we are stressed. And when we're now saying 20 breaths per minute is normal, I'm like, when you were talking about what has happened where we're so far off, I'm like, we probably used healthcare practitioners to measure that or something. (laughs) (laughs) Ultimately stressed running around doing or just anyone, you know, but it made me laugh because sometimes like the people that are helping us with our health are the people who, you know, unfortunately get compromised because they're a lot of is expected, right? Like there's a lot on the line, typically, so much good stuff. So anyway, excitement can be read as this. A new client told me the other day that if she gets excited, she's just like, totally worn out after that. I'm like, yeah, well, that's like a sign of essentially, you don't have a buffer of minerals and things for your adrenal, like your adrenals probably are not in great shape. (laughs) If you can't handle it's because it's like, I can't handle short term stress, I can't handle short term excitement. And I haven't had anyone else identify as like, oh, I can't actually handle excitement, which is good. It's good to like recognize that they're one in the same a little bit when reading by your body. So this is fun, very exciting. I want to ask you, this is something you brought up in one of ours, or I asked you maybe based on something you said in one of our sessions. We often think about maybe breathwork is useful in things like anxiety or like panic attack, very specific stuff. But what about what could we be using breathwork for as a treatment that we're not? And I brought up sleep apnea because it's like a, a obstructive breathing thing. And so what is under, I'm sure it's everything, but our goal here is to think outside the box. Like we don't think that we have many toolboxes outside of a BiPAP or a CPAP for sleep apnea. So tell me about things we could be using breath for that we're not. Yeah. So I think, I mean, sleep apnea is a wonderful place to start because as you said, a lot of our management now is a device. And I think that's taking away some of the development of the disease process. And I've been reading a lot into this idea of sort of cortical arousal, which for in layman's terms is like brain being awake. And again, it's based on physiology. I think sometimes we maybe don't think of the complexity of the human body and the processes that are occurring. Like your brain's hyper aware of everything that's going on. The nervous system is like, oh, that little fluctuation in carbon dioxide, what does that mean? That little fluctuation in heart rate, like there's so much going on that we're responding to. And again, if we come back to this concept of flexibility of physiology, if I've got that really narrow bandwidth, okay, that I 
breathe out my CO2 all of the time, I've slowly become a little bit more inflexible in my tolerance of carbon dioxide. What happens when we fall asleep? Our breath rate goes down. We start to breathe a little bit slower. So, there's a little bit of an increase in carbon dioxide levels. If that's outside my comfort zone, it's going to wake my brain up because my brain wants to know what's happening. Like, is this an emergency? The CO2 level went up and this doesn't happen throughout the day. So, maybe something's wrong. Bang, lights on. And I can't remember where who the researcher was, but they're looking at the percentage of sleep apnea that isn't obstructive, that is perhaps caused from a physiological mechanism where people are so inflexible in their ability to tolerate normal fluctuations of carbon dioxide levels that when their breath rate decreases at night, when they breathe a little bit slower and that CO2 builds up, that's enough to wake up the brain and the brain to go, what's happening here? And all of these little episodes of waking up and maybe not even just sleep apnea, but if you wake up a bunch of times throughout the night without an obvious reason, maybe it's physiology. And again, maybe it's not, but it's a really easy place to start. Fixing your CO2 tolerance requires no equipment. It requires very little know-how. It requires a little bit of investment of time. And maybe you're going to fix all these issues that you can't put your finger on. Like so many people I talk to, they're like, oh, my sleep's crappy, but I don't know why. All right, well, maybe there's something that we can address and maybe it's not that, but why not try and these very simple steps that you can take. So, I think sleep's a huge one that I really don't come across many people that don't mention their sleep is poor. And I think it's a current day accepted thing that like, oh, well, everyone sleeps bad. That's not normal. (laughs) Just because it happens to everyone doesn't mean it's normal. And I think we're at a real risk of accepting it as normal that, oh, it's just the modern day, like no one sleeps well anymore. Like, that's such a cop-out to me of like, well, why? (laughs) Shouldn't we investigate? Shouldn't we try different strategies? Because sleep is so important for everything that I think it would be a miss for us to be like, well, it's just this modern-day thing that no one sleeps as good as they used to. Let's try and fix that. (laughs) Yeah, common isn't necessarily normal, right? Exactly. My mind was kind of blown because in my perspective or in my knowledge base, I don't think of the fact that sleep apnea could be caused by something that isn't obstructive. So we don't know what percentage it is, right? But there is a percentage of sleep apnea that isn't obstructive and it might be intolerance. And I got a client tell me the other day about her child, who's I think like eight now who has sleep apnea. And I was like, how does that happen? I'm not the expert here, right? I'm just like trying to facilitate like maybe that there's more options than our standard toolbox. When people have got a CPAP machine, how often they actually use it? Because it's this big bulky thing that prevents you from getting comfortable. So like the tolerance for that is not great. So like what's another strategy? What's another avenue that we can look at to perhaps not need the thing that I don't use anyway? Like I have so many patients that are on CPAP. I'm like, are you using your CPAP? And they're like, no. And it's always no. (laughs) And I'm like, well, it's there for like, and that's where I can introduce, well, let's try this because you're not using the machine for what it's designed for. So, let's try and give you a different strategy. So, anyone out there that has a CPAP machine that's like, I can't tolerate wearing this thing and I just have to put up with the sleep apnea, there's other options. (laughs) I mean, in my immediate family, I know at least three of them, like one of my siblings, spouses, and then both of my parents. My parents were just here for Easter and I had to like arrange the bed so they could plug their CPAP machines. But my mom wasn't going to bring hers. And she has an autoimmune condition as of last year that affects like how she breathes, right? And I I mean, I'll be sending her this episode promptly, of course, because <laughs> she needs reminders all the time. We've gone over this. <laughs> but, but anyway, this is why we constantly need reminders. I hope you show up every week so you can get some reminders <laughs> from the podcast. Okay. So this has been amazing. I love it. I could keep going. So much fun. But 
what if someone listens to this and they're like, um, okay, got it. Not really don't have it, but like, okay, but what can I do? What would you tell someone? What can someone do today to start improving their breathing? I think the easiest, unfortunately, it's like the least sexy part of breathing is CO2 tolerance, carbon dioxide tolerance. It's the easiest thing for you to train. And there is an enormous amount of research in terms of your CO2 tolerance and your stress tolerance. And again, stress is a very flexible word depending on what it means. But there's a huge correlation between people that are very CO2 sensitive and heightened anxiety and panic. And the other end of that spectrum, people who are very CO2 tolerant tend to be less stressed and anxious. So this is something you can take control of yourself. Okay. When you slow down your breath, when you hold your breath, the CO2 builds up in your system. So what I recommend people to do, and I think this comes from just being a physio, people have got enough exercises, people have got enough things like giving them more things to do. They're like, there's just not enough time in my day to add more exercises. So let's add this to things you're already doing right? You're doing yoga, you're going for a walk, you're going for a ride, you're doing any physical activity, do not open your mouth, okay? If you're exercising to the point that you have to, (laughs) you have to huff and puff to regulate, just lower the level of intensity. And this is a really big ego thing. We want to go hard and fast and we want to push ourselves to that point. And it's going to be a little bit of a blow to the ego to not run as hard or not lift as much or not go as long. But instead of letting your breath catch up to the intensity that you're doing, regulate the intensity so that you can maintain nasal breathing. What you're actually doing is maintaining heightened levels of carbon dioxide, right? So, as soon as you feel that you need to open your mouth, otherwise it's getting too much, slow down, okay? I like to teach people gears. So, gear one is how we're breathing now. Quiet in and out through the nose, okay? I'm not forcing anything. This is just my normal breath. Gear two, perhaps I'm going for a brisk stroll or I'm doing some work around the house. Okay, maybe I need to... I need to increase the intensity a bit. There's some demand from my body and I need to meet that demand. Let's not open the mouth. Let's just breathe a little bit faster and harder. Gear three, all right, I'm really starting to push it. Maybe this is me going for a jog or I'm on the bike or I'm at that point where I'm feeling puffed, okay? But what we want to do is nasal inhale, mouth exhale. And we reserve gear four, which is mouth in, mouth out, for the really, really high end things. What I see... So many people do is they're going to go for a run and they go from gear one to gear four straight away. They start running and it feels uncomfortable and and I've got to run fast. I've got to run fast. So I'm just going to have to breathe however I breathe to maintain that speed, right? Let's just leave the ego behind and I might have to run faster. I might have to slow down to a walk every now and then to maintain nasal breathing. But what we're doing when we maintain nasal breathing is we're sustaining the heightened levels of carbon dioxide. Your body is very, very adaptable. You do that for a while, your body is going to become a little bit more tolerant of carbon dioxide. And then things like sleep, things like stress resilience, things like emotional regulation, the flow-on effect of being more CO2 tolerant is that you're more tolerant to those other things. So, breathe a little bit less than you want to. Breathe a little bit slower than you want to. Breathe quietly and softly. If you're sitting listening to this podcast and you can hear your own breath, you're breathing too much, okay? Slow it down. Make it a whisper. Make it gentle. If you can feel your shoulders rising and forth, you're breathing too much. Like, there's all of these cues. There's this, this, the person next to you shouldn't know you're breathing, right? So, if you can see next to someone, you see their shoulders are going up and down, their chest is elevating, you can hear their breath moving, their mouth's open, like, that's an issue, right? So, think of yourself. Is my breathing beautiful and subtle and soft? I like to call it secret breathing. People shouldn't know it's happening, okay? 
breathe quietly, softly. And again, what's going to happen and what's important for people to note is it's a little bit uncomfortable. CO2 going up is not a nice feeling for a lot of people. It will feel kind of like anxiety. It'll feel like, oh, I really need to breathe. There's this desire. There's this air hunger. Okay. That's what you want to feel. That's the whole goal. Right. So I do this myself when I'm unstuck in the dishwasher. Okay. I go, all right, I'm going to try and stack five plates before I take my next breath. Okay. And it's very interesting to see what happens is you start rushing like, Oh, I got to get out of this situation because it feels uncomfortable or I can I maintain composure? Like, yes, it's a getting a building desire. It's feeling a little bit scary, but I'm in control. All I'm feeling is carbon dioxide. So let's start to understand what is physiology. What does it feel like when your physiology changes? I think so many times we hijack physiology with psychology or emotion. This is anxiety. Well, it feels like anxiety, but if you can trigger that anxious response with a breath pattern, then it's not anxiety. It's that that's what you quote, quote, sort of call anxiety because when you feel certain situations, that's the emotion that you get. So, it's like this opportunity for us to desensitize our own response to our own physiology and to optimize our ability to utilize oxygen, to transport waste products, to just sort of work with our own system rather than I'm just like scraping by because I've got no buffer, as you put it, like I'm right at the ceiling already. So, let's start to stretch that space. Breathe less, breathe quietly, don't open your mouth, let yourself feel a little bit uncomfortable when you're out of breath. It's a good thing, okay? And you'll start to adapt to that and everything else will get a little bit easier. To recap, you're inspiring people to work on their CO2 tolerance, which is not a natural native thing to know about, but won the Nobel Prize in 2019, 2020? Something like I think 2019. 2019. So do not open mouth while exercising. There's different gears for that or try when you're doing the everyday things, just not to open your mouth. So you can have that increase of CO2, which is going to feel a little more uncomfortable. But the goal of what we're trying to do with increasing CO2 tolerance is... Is to create that flexibility in your own physiology. And the same way that we spoke about nervous system flexibility, the same way I, I might talk about sort of musculoskeletal flexibility. I think this ability to adapt and roll with the punches is so important and it's something that can be trained. So, like higher CO2 tolerance, generally higher stress tolerance. And again, I always want to pre-frame that and paraphrase that stress means different things to different people, but your ability to tolerate and adapt, it's like the concept of anti-fragility. Like, when you fall, are you going to bounce or you're going to break? Like this is ensuring that you bounce instead of break. Right? If we've got that very, very narrow window, and we're a little bit rigid, then it's more likely that we're going to break rather than bounce. Mm, okay. And I also love how you said we try to, I think, hijack physiology with emotion. Like we tell ourselves something, but we need to like work on physically, yeah. like remove our emotions and look at facts. Essentially. I read a quote, and again, I need to remember who says these quotes because I keep saying, there's this beautiful quote and I don't know who it's from, but all psychology is misunderstood physiology. Mm. Where I was like, whoa. And again, like physiology's getting a little bit out and my mind starts to jump to bad things and stuff. And we just blame it on, oh, my mind is always going to the negative, right? But I'm just completely ignoring the second part of that equation as my physiology is changing. And this is really one of the sort of key points I try and teach people in breathwork is like, let's get you to understand what your physiology is so that you're more clear on what is true emotion and psychology, right? Because a lot of things you're describing to me is you're responding or reacting to your physiology. And that's not a great thing because your physiology is changing all the time and it's adapting to the circumstance that you're in. So, if we can get you to make that distinction and to understand, oh, this 
response I'm having is physiology. It's not emotion. It's not a panic attack. It's not anxiety. It gives people a tool back. It gives people a roadmap of like, I know how to navigate this. This is physiology rather than something that's happening to me. Oh, this anxiety attack came out of the blue. And the last thing, because we will continue just to talk for hours, but there's this really beautiful research paper that people that have out of the blue panic attacks, mm-hmm. actually, when they put them on all these monitors, the hour before, end tidal CO2 changed, respiratory rate changed, there was all of these subtle cues that that person didn't know what to look for. So, when they say it came out of the blue, they actually didn't have the body awareness or the physiological awareness to notice my respiratory rate changed, my depth changed, my pattern changed, all of these cues saying, hey, we're going towards a panic attack and if you don't adapt, we're going to have a panic attack and then bang, I'm hit with a panic attack and it's like it was out of the blue. Well, it wasn't. out of the blue. (laughs) And and what you touched on at the start, if you can learn to listen to the whispers of the body, you don't have to hear it scream. Right, So, it's all about that awareness of those subtle fluctuations and changes and messages that we need to learn to listen to. I One of the best compliments that sometimes people will say to me is like, oh, now I'm so much more aware of this, this, and this. Awareness is your best friend from preventing uh, a catastrophe, essentially, in so many... I mean, literally, just go ahead and apply that. Put on glasses that say awareness, like awareness glasses, and just look at everything in the world through those for a second and just tell me what is not affected. Because I don't believe anything will not be affected. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I don't know if you're catching on, if you're listening. So one, if you like this episode, please screenshot it. Please share it and tag me, anti-inflammatory nutritionist, and I think your breath body therapy. Because I think this is a must-listen episode. I'm a pretty darn big fan of this because it's like the other part of what I want to make sure people have when I'm doing stuff with them. It's like, I need you to do this too, by the way. Like this goes in tandem for your best life. So... This was a great primer. Where can people find you online and get more of this Australian accent? <laughs> so I'm most active on Instagram or social media as Breath Body Therapy. My website's breathbodytherapy.com as well. I do work with people one-on-one and it's this sort of role of breath with body, with mindset, with nervous system, with emotional regulation, with stress. And so, yeah, it's how breath really relates to everything. But I'm very friendly (laughs) online. So if you've got questions, as you can probably tell from this podcast, I'm very passionate about this stuff. Like I like people to be like, hey, this is my problem. How can I fix it? Mm -hmm. So don't be shy and reaching out and asking for some advice and starting your own sort of breathwork journey. And that's extremely generous, just so you know. And also, he's very humble. He's not mentioning that he does have a five-week online course about like breathwork. Like to just, I like listening to his voice. I think it's a steal that you should go get it. And I think he has a discount code. And I think the code is less stress, not less stressed, less stress for 20% off the course. But anyway, it's a steal before that. So we'll have that in the show notes. I really think you guys need to do. I think like we should go ahead and make a New Year's resolution at this month and this time. I mean, like (laughs) we should just tape it on our forehead that we're going to practice increased CO2 tolerance with our mouth closed. But thank you so much for coming on today. I... Really enjoyed it, loved it, and I hope everyone else did too. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to 
to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 